0: My name's Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times, it's what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This time, the LBC broadcaster James O'Brien, whose best-selling book, How They Broke Britain, explains many of the themes you'll read about in the Byline Times and hear about on this podcast. It is rare, though, to hear them express so clearly and candidly on our airwaves, which is something we may discuss a little bit later the book skewers the lies of Brexit-supporting, immigrant-baiting politicians, the billionaire press barons who cheer them on, and the phalanx of opaquely funded think tanks whose views are featured in controversial columns which then become talking points for desperate radio presenters, of which James is <laughs> assuredly <laughs> not one. How are you, James? You It's right? great to see you.
1: Yeah, we're West Midlands Radio Royalty. Adrian. This, is a, this is a privilege. <laughs>
0: congratulations on the book. It touches on many of the themes that people will hear about and read about on Byline. Are you acquainted Mm. with the work of Byline Times? Yeah, there's a
1: few chapters where I draw on some of the work that some of your colleagues have done. I know Um, Sam Bright who... Yeah, past and present. Yeah, Yeah, I think Byline is very much a force for good. I'd say that and the New European are kind of rewriting some of the models that people thought were beyond rewriting. Your book is 10 individual chapters
0: about people who you think broke Britain. But there is a an idea, I think, tying this all together, and that this is a, a structural issue about the way
1: that Britain is run and the way in which our media is run. Yes, which sounds a bit close to conspiracy, doesn't it, if you haven't read it, or that the idea that there are sort of dark forces operating without us really noticing. I make the point repeatedly that some of it is deliberate and some of it is accidental. Accidental as in opportunistic, some of the people who have done the things that have Created the ecosystem in which the bad stuff could happen. Have done so out of self-interest, or, or just greed, or just professional opportunity, as opposed to any sort of form of ideological basis. But some of them are very much dedicated to prioritising the interests of wealth, great wealth, epic wealth, over almost everything else. And you see that wherever you look. Once you've got the Rosetta Stone in your head, you know something like trickle-down economics—the idea that if you if you dedicate economic policy to making the rich people even richer, then somehow everyone will be better off. It's so obviously bonkers. And yet it's pretty much the Bible, as far as most of the right wing newspapers in this country are concerned. I don't know who
0: you think of the 10 is the most, for want of a better word, villainous, but certainly in terms of press barons, Mm. both Murdoch and
1: Dacre get a right kick in. Dacre's the worst for me. I think he's irredeemable. I think he's irredeemably awful. Murdoch's much more interesting because there was this tension between the plutocrat and the journalist, as it were. You know, he's got ink in his blood. His dad owned newspapers in Australia. He did his traineeship on the Daily Express here. And there's an amazing thing that I stumbled across while I was researching it when he did a public debate with Ben Bradley, who was the editor of the Washington Post during the Watergate inquiry. And he offered up one of the best explanations I've ever heard of why journalists seem to skew towards the liberal. I mean, he pointed out that it's about education, highly educated, highly curious, highly intelligent people are statistically a little bit more likely to lean away from the kind of politics that he's ended up endorsing. So I find him much more interesting. I find Paul Dacre evil. I think that, you know, even before that hat-trick of front pages demonstrated the depths of his depravity, the crush the saboteurs, which is 1930s Germany language, talking about elected parliamentarians, the enemies of the people, talking about judges, that's the independent judiciary, become enemies of the people. That's even more 1930s Germany. And then somewhat less shockingly, but just as troublingly, the our Remainer universities, where he's attacking academic freedom. So you know, those three platforms of British democracy, the, the elected parliament, the independent judiciary and academic freedom, coming under attack because of one man's very weird, warped mind. And yet, simultaneously claiming to be an upholder or a representative of British values. Once you've got rid of those three things, I'm not sure what British values are left. So out of all of the people in the book, I started off having the biggest problem with him and I unsurprisingly ended still having the biggest problem with him.
0: And one of the intriguing things about Gaker is that although he promotes very, in inverted commas, controversial Mm. columnists and has headline-grabbing front pages which generate radio phoning content and so on, he himself... He's not someone who is comfortable being held to a cat.
1: He's like all bullies. He's a massive coward. You'll never see him being interviewed anywhere remotely robust. You'll hardly ever see him being interviewed anywhere full stop. I think he had to turn up at Leveson. He spent the rest of his life since that moment having sort of anxiety dreams about it, I imagine. The best story is one from a book called Mailmen by another Adrian, actually. Adrian Addison has quite a lot of male journalists were queuing up to put the boot into him anonymously, as you'd expect. And it describes him as never having to buy new shoes because the only time the soles of his shoes ever come into contact with pavement is on the walk from his carpeted office to his limousine. So he just walks across (laughs) a small piece of pavement in High Street, Kensington. And yet he claims that he speaks for this great silent majority and uh, Middle England. What he's done since he took over from David English is create a Middle England that is completely terrified of foreigners, of change, of Anything really that doesn't have its roots in the 1950s. And then having created that terror and that fear, he claims that somehow what he offers is what people want. It's very clever. It's a brilliant business model. But in terms of what it's done to the country, it's catastrophic.
0: Aren't you being a bit kind on Murdoch? Obviously, you talk about Fox News, which has been both hugely lucrative for him, and your suggestion is that it's the money, really, which has turned Murdoch towards Fox News, and that rather than ideology. Those of us who remember the Sun newspaper, his Sun newspaper in the 1980s, and you do reflect back on the Hillsborough tragedy and Kelvin McKenzie Mm. and that awful headline, The Truth, and that story in 1989. But Murdoch's son, even in that era, was, for example, ferociously gay bashing, yes, wasn't it? So, yes. I mean,
1: Murdoch's always been an arse, hasn't he? Uh, yeah, well, he has. I think that the book is of the moment, Adrian, mm-hmm. actually. And I think mm-hmm. if I'd written it 20 years ago, Murdoch would have overshadowed Dacre very much so for the reasons that you touch on. And the days when the disgraced former editor, Calvin Mackenzie was in his pomp, as it were, the son exercised enormous influence. But I don't think it's just the money with Murdoch. I think he has crossed the Atlantic. He's obviously in contact with his editors here, but the big priority for him is America. The big priority for him is his American interest, most obviously Fox News. And I think as that has happened, so The Sun in particular has moved into a sort of weird stagnation. You know, and I know, there's no way that Boris Johnson or Liz Truss or Rishi Sunak are turning to the Sun every day to find out what the press is saying about them. They're turning to the Mail and to the Telegraph and increasingly to the Times, where, and I do make this point, because some of the stuff that we might know and think that everybody knows actually is news to a lot of other people who are paying attention, a lot of other informed people. But the bloke currently editing the Times, and you can see, so I'm the son of a newspaper journalist, so I've been watching this stuff all my life, you can see the Times going down the road that the Telegraph went down. You can see it surrendering its reputation for great gravitas and authority in pursuit of populist points really and and you can see it very very much on the comment pages the times is now edited by a man called tony gallagher and tony gallagher is a former editor of this is quite a list he's a former editor of the sun he's a former editor of the daily telegraph and he's a former deputy editor of the daily mail and a fully paid up member of the paul dacre fan club so the people who talk about a kind of conspiracy or a new elite or the people who claim that they're the ones being silenced or they're the ones being cancelled. They're in control of almost everything. And it's a relatively small number of individuals that are sufficiently, I'd say, bent in a moral sense, not in a criminal sense, sufficiently bent to do the bidding of what the owners want, which is to commoditize hatred on a scale that this country has, well, not seen before and from which it is still suffering. So the horrible homophobia that Mackenzie punted in The Sun stood out, you know, like a boil on the backside of the British media. Now, the peddling of hatred is less explicit, but it's a lot more widespread. You've seen it move into pretty much every area going. And the current rhetoric on refugees, I think, is worse than anything that we've seen since 1990, probably.
0: Well, as the son of a refugee and of an economic migrant, I have to say, I find the failure to call it out across the
1: political and media spectrum mm. quite appalling. I mean, it's a stain on Britain. It's become, even for the Labour Party under Keir Starmer, it's become a given that the British people want less immigration and want fewer refugees. Whereas, of course, in private, everybody acknowledges the necessity of more immigration, particularly on the demographic time bomb that's ticking in the UK at the moment. But that's the fault of the papers. I think the public in possession of more facts would actually be a lot more amenable to the reality of the necessity of immigration. But they're terrified of a newspaper editorial. They really are.
0: And that demographic time bomb is that we are an ageing society. Over the next 20 to 30 years, we'll have many older people yeah. and we'll be an inverted pyramid in terms of age in this country. So who's going to do the caring for those older people? Who's going to do the work that raises the taxes to pay for the health care for those older people? Well, we don't have enough young people of our own.
1: And the birth rate as well, it's sort of setting off fire alarms. The economist Jonathan Portes at King's who appears in the book, has done some research this week on what this birth rate means. And in terms of how many babies a woman of the relevant age is having, they reckon that the figure is now the lowest that it's been since records began. And that's just going to compound this pyramid that you, it's a great description. And of course, when people voted in 2016 to tell people to fuck off back to where they came from, they did. And we're still counting the cost, and yet the Tory party is still competing to see who can be cruelest towards those who are here and those who are thinking of coming here. It's quite spectacular, and it's entirely a consequence of the sort of tabloid hate-mongering that I describe in the book, particularly the Paul Dacre attitude to immigration, which has always been you're living in an almost exclusively white village in Surrey or Yorkshire or somewhere like that, and you are gaslit and groomed into being terrified of an immigrant threat, whereas when you move into the areas of high immigration, particularly of high diversity, the fear of immigration is almost non-existent. It's why they hate London so much. Marbled through the book
0: is the world of the think tank mm. not one of the chapters fails to mention the influence of a think tank i just want you to
1: reflect a little bit on that because that is perhaps the untold story yeah. the newest bit and actually apart from byline times and george Monbiot at the guardian it remains criminally undertold for fairly obvious reasons once you understand what's going on so this is my job this is doing the radio show and watching producers on other programs book guests, up to and including the time I spent presenting Newsnight. And just one day, I can't even remember why, someone probably just got on my nerves. I just thought, well, what's his qualification for being here? Oh, he's the chief executive of the Taxpayers Alliance, or the director general of the Institute. But no, I said, oh, no, know, I know what his job title is. And I know what the organization is called. But It's not like being a professor of economics at York University, is it? We all know what that means. Who invented this organization? Where does it come from? Do they have academic credibility? Who pays their wages? And that last question is the one that, frankly, should exclude any of them from broadcast studios or newspaper columns. You said in your introduction that the controversial columns spawn radio phone-ins and It's Worse than that, mate. They're in the news pages now. So research that's published by a secretly funded think tank will make a front page story in the Telegraph or the Times or the Mail, and then they'll get a comment piece by someone from the think tank inside the paper. And what they're presenting is propaganda. It's entirely spurious, wealth fetishizing propaganda designed to, you know, remove taxes, to reduce regulation, to make it easier and easier and easier for very, very rich people to become ever, ever richer and to remove the protections that normal people have, anything from health and safety legislation or cladding on the side of buildings or minimum wage legislation, sugar taxes, constantly insisting we can't afford this and we can't afford that and it's personal responsibility and we don't want a nanny state. Whereas what they're actually dedicated to is just essentially worshipping at the altar of the idea that business should be free to do whatever it wants, that it has no responsibility. And once I started looking into it, I couldn't believe my eyes, because you'd see someone from the Adam Smith Institute, someone from the Institute of Economic Affairs, there's sort of seven or eight or nine of them that operate more or less as one. And they've infiltrated every single level of politics and media, culminating in Liz Truss's premiership when. She got into Downing Street, a bloke called Tim Montgomery, who's a sort of hard-right Tory commentator. He tweeted that the Institute of Economic Affairs, which is populated by sort of weirdos and... um, Well, no, just weirdos. And he tweeted that Downing Street had now been turned into an incubator for the ideas of the Institute of Economic Affairs. And the guy running it at the time replied with a sunglasses emoji as if to say, yep, that's right, we have. And then when you saw the personnel coming into Westminster during that short-lived reign of Liz Truss, it was more likely that they'd come from one of these secretly funded, entirely unaccountable propaganda disseminators than it wasn't it was more likely that they cut directors of communications people coming in at advisors and they've got no qualification they've never done anything in many cases except work for these made up organisations
0: I love that you draw attention to the fact that they all have rather grand titles oh, as mate,
1: well. Yeah, don't the Lord High Panjandrum <laughs> of King of Crisps, Head of Stationery. They all give themselves these ridiculous titles because that way you create the illusion for people watching the television, for people listening to the radio, for people reading the newspapers that there's some heft to their qualification. But you could call yourself, we could set one up now. We could set up right now the Institute of Wizard Weezes. And the Lord High Grandmaster is Adrian Goldberg and the wizard is James O'Brien. And we could literally (laughs) do that now. And someone would book us if we were peddling these hard right economic cruel policies someone would book us and we'd be on telly tonight and we'd be introduced as if that was a real thing as if it was somehow equivalent to having spent 100 years in industry or having spent 100 years in charity or having spent 100 years in academia and they're not i look into how it started this um, is
0: fantastic this is one of my favorite geez. bits in the book so this goes back to the economist the free market yeah. liberal as it were yes. economically liberal economist friedrich hayek
1: yes and and go on So there's a chicken farmer who was i think cross about restrictions being put on chicken farming and in the reader's digest he read a, an abridged version of hayek's book and decided that he wanted to dedicate a significant amount of time and energy to stopping government playing a role in business and he went to meet hayek at the lse and then went off and made a fortune battery farming chickens and used that fortune to launch the Institute of Economic Affairs. And there's letters exchanged between him and fellow founders saying, well, we can't let on what we're really up to. We can't let the people know what we're really trying to do. It's very important that we sound this and sound. So if I sounded like a conspiracy theorist when I was explaining this to you, look, here's a letter from one of the founders to another describing exactly what I'm talking about and saying it out loud, not expecting it perhaps to see the light of day. And then the fellow that founded the Adam Smith Institute, who just got an OBE in the last honours list, he wrote an autobiography which no one really read a few years ago in which he admitted he said we'd meet every saturday night just walk past it mate the cork and bottle in uh, leicester square we'd meet there every saturday night and it'd be some of the think tank lads a couple of daily telegraph writers someone from the spectator a bunch of people from conservative central office and he literally said we would um discuss what we wanted the agenda to be for the week ahead and how we would try and get it into all the newspapers and get it into all the magazines and he wrote something quite poignant he wrote we didn't have any truck at all we didn't have any inns at all with broadcast media so that's going back 30 years or so now you can't turn a program on apart from mine and yours and a few others you can't turn a program on without some herbert from one of these organizations being offered up as an authority as a sage voice on matters economic or matters of social policy or matters of taxation and yet their only qualification is the cash they get from donors that they won't disclose It's incredible. And and it's a national scandal and it infiltrates every level of society because, as I say, you'll see a story in a paper, it'll get picked up by broadcast media. Decent people, you know what it's like for producers, we need a guest. And all of these people have just got yes. On their voicemail? Yes, on their auto-reply. Would you be available to appear? Well, of course they're available to appear on a programme because everybody else is too busy trying to earn a living.
0: That's their job. and
1: Yes, <laughs> you like it's their s- job.
0: As you say, I, I've been there with you know, very well-meaning yep. producers. They will say, well, we need to get balance. Where do we get balance? Yeah. There's a right-wing voice here. It might be the Institute for Economic Affairs, as you yep. say. It might be the Adam Smith Institute. Probably a think tank based around Tufton Street in yes. London. Yes. and." Their job is to provide the balance, but the Taxpayers' Alliance, representative of which
1: taxpayers well,
0: precisely? The taxpayers who want to pay more tax so that we get, we get better roads and we get better schools?
1: Uh, well, I, I had a swing yesterday. I don't do many spats on Twitter anymore. But occasionally, I got very cross yesterday at this sort of a rehabilitation of Nadim Zahawi, who was fired as chairman of the Conservative Party after he'd been found to have broken the ministerial code by the ethics advisor to the prime minister because of his tax affairs. And then, of course, he had to pay a big fine to HMRC as part of a seven-figure settlement regarding five million quid that he'd tried not to pay tax on. And this rehabilitation is underway on my own radio station at the time on a different program, and it wasn't mentioned once that he'd lost his job as chair of the Conservative. He's even been asked for his advice on economics and what the tax situation should be in the next budget. A man who's been penalised by HMRC for his attempted tax avoidance. And someone tweeted something rude about me, and I just thought, I'd have a look at his profile. And it was someone who was working now for the Adam Smith Institute who used to work for the Taxpayers Alliance. I thought, hang on, surely you're not so stupid that you are going to come on Twitter to defend someone find a huge sum of money and fired from the Conservative chair for attempted tax avoidance and a degree of disingenuousness or perhaps dishonesty with what he was telling various prime ministers about his situation regarding an investigation by the HMRC and still claim to be a representative of taxpayers. I mean, it is, it's its is—it's—it's beyond absurd, and it's beyond obscene. And the reason why they're too daft to realise how obvious their tactics are is because no one ever questions them. It's, they waltz around with complete impunity, you know? They, they walk into jobs in Downey Street. They honestly do think that they are to the manner born. And part of the text of the book, part of the thesis of the book, is that they've created a manner to which they are born. The ecosystem in which something as objectively stupid as Brexit could happen has been created in part by treating these people as an equal and opposite balance to experts, to genuine experts, culminating in Gove, of course, saying that we've had enough of experts from organisations with acronym names or initial names. But of course, he didn't mean that people who are not experts, but who are portrayed as experts because they're sympathetic to his sort of vampire politics. You explore
0: the Brexit phenomenon. I mean, that is the place where all of these forces gather mm. to create the perfect storm of national self-humiliation yeah. or stupidity, whatever. And these forces all come together to create Brexit. Within that, there is the story of B-Leave, which was a, a group that was funded by Vote leave and you tell the story of Shamir Sami. who was someone who was born in Pakistan, lived in Birmingham, wanted to get out of Birmingham. I don't know why anybody would want to do that. And uh, wanted to make connections and was told, well, get involved, something to do with Brexit on either side. The Remain side didn't get in touch with him. Mm. Vote Leave did and he got caught up and kind of became an unwitting witness to so many of these forces in this job.
1: It's an extraordinary story, which he tells entirely in his own words. And it's quite moving, actually, because he's an innocent. He's an innocent and he's an idealist when he arrives in Tufton Street, because, of course, vote leave comes out of exactly the same ecosystem as these think tanks. It's the same people. The guy that founded the Taxpayers Alliance was the head of Vote Leave, a chap called Matthew Elliott, who just got put in the House of Lords in Liz Truss's ludicrous resignation honours list, or sacked, fired, chased out of Downing Street honours list, whatever you want to call it. And Shamir witnessed the law breaking that the Electoral Commission would later identify. And they went for him They went for him in the most hideous way. He'd been going out with a fellow who was by then working for Theresa May. Shamir was not out as a gay man. So they outed him. His former boyfriend said, oh, I think all of these allegations are just built on him being a bit bitter about how our relationship ended or something like that. And, you know, Shamir's got family in Pakistan. His uncle and aunt back in Broome didn't know that he was gay. He's, He's been outed by Downing Street. They tried to close it down, but Dominic Cummings had already put out the press release, already sent it to a friendly journalist. All sorts of elements of that story would be on a post office level of scandal if they had been properly and widely reported. But of course, they weren't because the only places that can achieve that level of impact are newspapers and almost all of the newspapers were fully on board with vote leave. And even the BBC, I'm afraid by then had been completely cowed by that combination of power. Culminating in Laura Coonsberg giving Matthew Elliott an almost free run at poo-pooing the Electoral Commission's findings two weeks before they came out. It's as if you knew the verdict was guilty, but you're going to put the bloke who is in the dock before sentencing. You're going to put him on the BBC on primetime with the political editor and give him half an hour to explain why the jury is wrong. The judge is an idiot and he's innocent. After all, I had to triple check it all. I thought, I can't believe this has happened. How is this man who runs an organisation that is found to have breached electoral law allowed to plead his innocence on the BBC? What's the point? What's the point of the commission if you're allowed to plead your innocence after it's found you guilty? And was allowed to
0: plead his case when the full verdict that had not been
1: published at that point by the Electoral Commission? Yeah, precisely. So he could make all sorts of claims and denials that she has got no ability to check and properly scrutinise I think they were really panicking at that point because they knew how serious it was, but the public never did find out how serious it was, partly because the denial was in place before the verdict had dropped. Shamir's story, I think, was affecting Mm.
0: because he was someone who believed in... What you and I probably grew up believing in the idea of fairness and tolerance in Britain, that things are done in an orderly and a respectful way, that nobody jumps the queue. This notion that we have of ourselves, which actually is not how public life has been conducted in this country
1: for the last decade. No. Well, as I say, the fellow that we were just talking about is going into the House of Lords now, so he's getting rewarded for his role in delivering Brexit. And of course, the organisation he led broke the law. So yeah, Shamir would see it as British values. And I wonder whether you need to be an outsider to fully feel what he feels because for us it's sometimes hard to pin down what we mean by British values because lots of other countries have the same values maybe not the queuing that you mentioned but pretty much (laughs) pretty much everything else but Shamir grew up in Pakistan when Musharraf was in charge you know he knows what fascism effective fascism looks like he knows what really oppressive regimes look like and he saw the United Kingdom as a beacon as a beacon of liberty and Then he came here and found himself in the very heart of a world because he also ended up working for one of the think tanks and details and indeed his court case detailed the cooperation. It's the same as it was in the cork and bottle back in the day, planning what they're going to be doing and who's going to be doing this show and who's going to be doing that. And I don't think he could quite believe what it was like. It was like he found himself in the heart of a tumour. And that humour was affecting the body politic, affecting the country that he had seen as a beacon of freedom. So really, I mean, it's, a, it's almost a morality tale. And he tells it very straight, and he's happy now. He's in a better place emotionally and mentally. But of course, all of the people that tried to break him have ended up with peerages and knighthoods and cushy jobs in Downing Street. It's extraordinary. The innocent idealist who stood for good things gets chewed up and spat out. And all of the people who stood for the opposite get rewarded and continue to be rewarded, right up until last week when that peerage list came out. Might even be a four-part ITV drama. Who knows? I wish they would. I No, I really do. I mean, I know they did one with Benedict Cumberbatch, but even then, I don't think people fully appreciated the real scale. Even someone like me, you know, who talks about it endlessly, or has done over the last few years, the full scale of what went on. The Cambridge Analytica stuff still... Isn't properly understood. The manipulation of people by horrible, horrible, provocative, divisive, racist Facebook adverts, deliberately targeted because all the data had been harvested at people. This is where Carol comes in. Carol, Carol Cadwallader, yeah. who who is a, a legend, a legend, but she just couldn't work out why people in Portalbut, where she grew up, had essentially voted to turn off funding for the poorest parts of the country that they lived in. So she started looking into how it had happened, and that led her all the way to Cambridge Analytica. Much of the joy, if that's the right word, of
0: your radio programme these days is taken from dissecting the failures of mm. Brexit, the ways in which those who supported Brexit now attempt to contort themselves, to persuade themselves that Brexit was in fact a success right. or that it was a failure because of somebody
1: else's fault. Yeah, there is a, there's a great Brexit, but it goes to a different school. I mean, we're running out of road on that, mate, to be honest. I, I mean, There it, 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 it was, it was a while when it was every show, but now I don't really know. Someone stood up in the House of Commons yesterday and said, we've found a razor clam bed in the Thames. Would the Prime Minister agree with me that this is a brilliant benefit of Brexit? <laughs> a brilliant benefit of Brexit. They found some clams in the River Thames. I don't know what that's got to do with Brexit, even if it did have something to do with Brexit. The idea that that's what they are offering up now has proof. So I get the occasional idiot on Twitter who will say, I'd got one the other day, a cab driver. And he said, oh, I've just arrived in Lanzarote, and I got through customs fine. Huh. and that's proof that brexit was a good idea the fact that his journey into lanzarote is the same as it was before so you know the idea that we were going to have more money we were going to have a lower cost of living a higher standard of living if you were racist and you wanted to get rid of all the immigrants there's more people coming here than ever before every single measure by which brexit was sold to the british public hasn't just sort of withered it's died completely and yet still they come claiming that it was a good idea
0: When you say every single measure, James, I mean, you are basing it on these organisations. I mean, they're just a bunch of made-up initials, aren't they? The OBR, the Office for Budget Responsibility. the IMF. The the OECD. I mean, (laughs) what what do these
1: people know? But, as I point out in the book, they're so shameless. And so bent that they will argue, Rees-Mogg and the rest of them will argue that the IMF is biased against Brexit. One of the IEA blokes literally said they're punishing us for Brexit. And then the IMF reviewed its forecasts and they became a bit more favourable for the UK in that window, in that quarter. But they never write an article saying... Oh, well, obviously, they're not biased against Britain because of Brexit because they've just reviewed, you know, the old when the facts change, I change my mind line. Everything is from this position of bogus victimhood and weird sort of ideological insanity that the European Union was embarked upon a mission to denigrate the UK, that somehow they wanted to damage one of their most important members. And, And selling that idea to the British public brings us right back full circle to the newspapers.
0: Just want to talk about a couple of people who you mention in the book. Jeremy Corbyn, definitely Mm. outside this nexus. David Cameron, to some extent within this nexus, but clearly a Remainer.
1: But they are people who you say broke Britain. It's interesting that I hadn't noticed that before, actually, until you just lumped them together, in that their offences are quite similar. There's a combination, albeit that one exercised real power and one never did, there's a combination of complacency and arrogance that led them both to do things that are part of the story of how Britain was broken. So Cameron just thought, because of his unique set of skills, that he would be able to succeed where no Tory had succeeded before and close the European problem within his own party. And Corbyn, because I don't quite get Corbyn in the same way that I get most of the other characters in the book, but he just didn't think it mattered. He's got that, he doesn't really understand stuff, Corbyn. You know, he's a bit like a, a clockwork toy is that you wind you wind them up and then he's off and he's off for the next 50 years whatever the issue is, the opinion that he had in 1974 will be exactly the same as the opinion he's got now, it doesn't matter how much the world has changed, so the Tony Ben view of the European Union he was fully signed up with, fully paid up to never bothered to question it and so he was not a Remainer and then of course his, the lazy partisanship means he won't go on the same platform as David Cameron, they won't actually combine Or even Tony Blair or, Yeah, or even Tony Blair, they won't join forces to do what is in the national interest. He constantly prioritizing the, uh, the purity of his own position, how he perceives it. I don't think there's anything pure about it at all. But, oh, no, I can't compromise my principles by appearing on a platform with David Cameron to try to save the country from an act of epic economic harm because he wasn't clever enough to understand the scale of the economic harm that the country was going to face. So his sins are sins of omission, more than commission. And in some ways, Cameron fits into that category as well. I also like the Cameron chapter because of what it tells us about class in this country and what it tells us about how a very ordinary person can not only end up prime minister, but part of his journey to Downing Street involved someone at Buckingham Palace ringing up someone at the Conservative Research Office to say, this is a most exceptional young man, and you're very lucky to have him coming your way. And then his future mother-in-law rings up the bloke running Carlton Communications and says, look, he needs a job because he he wants to have one job before he becomes an MP. And he goes, fine, I'll make him my director of communications. And I don't think David Cameron has ever stopped once to wonder what his life would have been like if he'd been born in um, Moseley into a family where dad worked for British Leyland or something like that. I don't think it's ever crossed his mind. I think he honestly thinks all joy, all success he's enjoyed in his life is down to him. It's not down to privilege or advantage or any of it. And that, of course, is a large part of the the national tragedy. That reverence for class culminating for me in Jacob Rees-Mogg being made Secretary of State for Business in Liz Truss's short-lived tenure as prime minister I, I mean truly even more absurd i think than the dean being secretary of state for culture
0: underlying your analysis james is a view i think that the great british public have been misled mm. are the great british public in your view stupid are some of them stupid are the great british public actually at heart racist xenophobic
1: I don't think so. I hope I don't sound naive. One phrase, slogan that I've been intoning since 2016 is contempt for the con men, compassion for the con. And the book, in a way, is, is about the con men. And, but of course, calling someone con can sound patronizing. It can sound condescending. But the way I try to think of it is that if there are 100 people in a room and someone runs in and shouts fire and 52 people leg it out of the room and 48 stay put, And it turns out there was no fire at all. Those 52 people aren't stupid. Those 52 people had every reason. There was an awful lot of effort put into persuading them that there was a fire and that they should leave the room. 48% who waited for signs of smoke or flame or they could have been the stupid ones. They could have been the complacent ones. You know how averages work. Obviously, half the population is below average intelligence or 49.9% recurring, whatever the figure is. But I don't think of it in those terms. I think this is why the book starts with the media figures, the effort put in to terrorizing the population, to making them fearful of the other, fearful of the foreigner. Mate, they can turn us against firefighters and doctors. They're not going to struggle to turn us against Polish people or, you know, the mythical migrant who simultaneously wants to steal your job and claim all the benefits so he can send them back to his mansion in Krakow. No, I don't think the British, but I, th- I just think they deserve better, Adrian. I think we all deserve better. The book's called How They Broke Britain. Mm. Can Britain in your view, be mended? I have to say yes. There have been times when I haven't been so sure. Anyone who listens to my radio show will will know that there are days when you sort of just seem to be cataloguing the bleakness. And I'm very wary of putting too much hope on the shoulders of any politician or any political party. But I think the starting point is to recognise that there is no point having power if you don't use it to help people who need help. And I think Keir Starmer is making now, finally, it pretty clear that that is why he wants to be prime minister. I like the stuff about children. I think it's a game changer. It it emerged on the day that we're speaking that he is going to help children who need help, whether it's their mental health, whether it's their dental health, whether it's eating disorders, to put effort into looking after people who... Are not currently being looked after. And that it's always seemed to me since I was a kid. What's the point of being in power if not to improve the lives of? The population, And you start with the people whose lives are most in need of improvement. The Tory approach used to be, as we touched on at the beginning, you improve the lives of the people who've already got the best lives. This is where inheritance tax cuts, even now, still a big talking point for them. Nadeem Zahawi yesterday calling for inheritance tax cuts, funny that. Or you win votes of people who don't benefit from your economic policies by promising them that you'll make life harder for others. You know, vote for me and we'll deport people. Vote for me and we'll punish people. Vote for me and we'll take away their homes or their welfare payments. So that seems to me to be a huge part of the decline is this commoditization of cruelty and othering. So a huge part of the repair has to be a return to a sort of Bevanite notion or, or an Atlee esque notion of government being not just a small part of life improvement, but almost being. Entirely dedicated to making people's lives better. Of course the nanny state is a good idea. You know, who doesn't want to be looked after? Who doesn't want people who need her? Who doesn't want babies to be fed? So yeah, I'm probably more optimistic now in January 2024 than I was when I started the book in January 2023.
0: How They Broke Britain by James O'Brien is out now. Thank you, James, for your time. Thank you, Adrian. This has been the Byline Times podcast, funded by subscriptions to The Byline Times, our brilliant monthly newspaper. If you want to take it out of subs, head over to our website, bylinetimes.com, and you get all the details there. And this has been a We Bring Audio production by me and Harvey White in Birmingham, even though I'm in LBC's offices (laughs) in Leicester Square. But you get the idea. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again soon. Cheers now. Ta-da. Lovely stuff.